Hey fellow foodies, I'm Dr. Cassandra Quave and you're listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. Um, we have a very curious episode for you today that crosses the domains of anthropology to literature. We'll be talking about myths, monsters, and horror stories as they relate to a certain very fearsome diet. But before we jump into our, tar- our topic, I wanna give you an update on plans for our upcoming field expedition Um, in the Balkans. We're going to be working across the mountains, running along the borders of Albania and Kosovo. And you may not know this, but actually 8% of the global medicinal plant trade originates in the Balkans. Um, The livelihoods of many people in these rural regions depend on these resources, but over-harvesting has depleted many of these valuable species in the wild. So I'll be leading an international research team to document the ways in which these medicinal plants are used locally, but also how they enter into trade. If you'd like to help us on this mission, we can definitely take any assistance you've got. You can go to our Emory Momentum platform at momentum.emory.edu slash quave to learn more. Now on on to today's show, we're gonna be talking about some very unusual foods. One could even say maybe they're not foods or they're very taboo foods. Um, with some certain cultural exceptions. Our guest today is Kevin Wetmore Jr. He's a professor of theater arts at Loyola Marymount University, where he teaches Asian theater, African theater, horror theater, Shakespeare, and stage combat. I wish we were in person for this uh, podcast. I could learn some moves. Um, He's also the author and editor of over two dozen books, including Post-9-11 Horror in American Cinema, Shakespearean Echoes, Devil's Advocates, The Conjuring Theater, and Macabre. Um, He is an award-winning short story writer who has also been nominated four times for the Bram Stoker Award. And he's an actor, director, and stage combat choreographer who runs the Shakespeare on the Bluff Festival, the only free to the public Shakespeare festival in um, Los Angeles's uh, West Side. But today we're gonna be talking about one of his latest books. This was released in 2021. It's called Eaters of the Dead, Myths and Realities of Cannibal Monsters. And I came across this book when I was looking for new books in um, the food domain. Rest assured, there are no recipes for human flesh um, in the book, but some really interesting stories of how um, these monsters and myths um, have appeared across cultures, across languages um, over time. So let me set the book up a bit for you before we dive into into the discussion. And I'll just read the the description of it. Um, Every culture has monsters that eat us and every culture repels in horror when we eat ourselves. From Grindel, from Beowulf, anybody remember that from high school? (laughs) To Sawney Bean and from the ghouls of ancient Persia to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Our fear of being consumed is both universal and terrifying. Kevin explores monsters that eat the dead, ghouls, cannibals, wendigos, and other beings that feast on human flesh. He moves from myth through history to contemporary popular culture, considering ancient Greek myths of feeding humans to the gods through sky burial in Tibet and actual cases of cannibalism in modern day societies. Um, So I'm just, fascinated with this topic, which I I guess in a a way sounds a bit horrifying, but it is interesting. It's an interesting um, history of humankind and the role that 
that this practice plays in so many different cultures. So thanks so much for coming on the show, Kevin. It's great to meet you and I'm excited to learn more. Great to meet you as well. And, and thank you for inviting me. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So why don't we start by positioning the readers around the difference between an anthropo—let me see if I can pronounce this correctly—anthropophagus monster Good. and a cannibal. And maybe you could maybe you can explain sure. what that long word actually means first. The, the the two often get conflated, but they're they're not the same word. Um, anthropophagus means uh, something that eats anthro humanity, men, uh, people. So that's an anthropophagus monster is a monster that eats people. A cannibal is something that eats its own species. So when we talk about uh, the shark in Jaws is an anthropophagus monster, but it's not a cannibal monster, as opposed to the family in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is both a cannibal family and an, an anthropophagus family. Uh, they eat people and they are people. So that makes them cannibals. So what the book does is sort of start off with this deconstruction of, of the idea of the cannibal and the idea of being eaten. Part of the impetus behind the book is uh, I'm a fan of what you might call lesser monsters. Everyone knows about ghosts and vampires and werewolves and zombies. Uh, but as a weird kid, I was always into the ghouls, wendigos, aswang, these sort of more strange monsters, all of which had in common the fact that they would eat, not necessarily eat live people, but they would eat corpses. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> and that leads to sort of two major fears the fear of being eaten, and certainly that a large part of the book is the fear of being eaten by something, but also the fear of eating. We talk about in the book several times, especially when it comes to, since I'm a theater professor, plays that deal with people who don't know that they're eating human flesh until after they've eaten it, and then they're told uh, the most impossible line in all of Shakespeare, where are my sons? There they are, baked in that pie. Uh, you can't say that line on stage without getting a laugh. So it's all about the fear of, of cannibalism, the fear of being eaten by cannibals, but also the fear of becoming a cannibal oneself, that one might become an anthropophagous monster. And our, our culture, uh, not to keep going on, but our culture, and by our culture, I mean all cultures really, have the idea that at death we are somehow consumed anyway. The word sarcophagus comes from sarcophagus, uh, the eater of flesh. A sarcophagus is literally a box that eats flesh. Um, when uh, in medieval theater in Europe, when they wanted to show people sort of dying and going to hell, they had a giant mouth on stage. You were sort of thrown into this giant mouth. And in the end, if you've read uh, Mary Roach's wonderful book, Stiff, she talks about what happens to corpses. In the end, we are all eaten in one way or another, whether it's by uh, insects, whether it's by the, you know, the second you die, the bacteria in your own body start to devour you. If you're cremated, you are consumed by the flames. So being consumed is the fate of humanity. You're going to be consumed in one way or another. And the book explores, okay, let's let's look at that fear and let's look at how it manifests in different cultures, especially in terms of the mythological monsters that eat. And so do you do you think that this this fear of cannibalism is linked at its core to the fear of the concept of death? or the concept of nothingness following death? Or... I think that's certainly a part of it. Uh, you know, the mm -hmm. it's, again, there's another wonderful book called The Worm at the Core that talks about how every human activity is based on the idea that we're the only animal that knows we're gonna die. You know, my dog mm -hmm. isn't running around with a bucket list being like, well, there, these are the things I need to do before I <laughs> pass away. But we know that we're going to die. So everything we do is either fighting against that idea. I'm trying to, I'm raising children, I'm writing books as an attempt to somehow create immortality for myself beyond the physical body. But also just the, the 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 inevitable consequence of life is death. And that's really hard to wrap your mind around. So it's much easier for us to subvert that into monsters, 
you know, the beauty of ghosts is it says death isn't the end, that somehow your, your psychology, your personality, your consciousness carries on after death. What, what we're afraid of with cannibalism, especially, is it says the body is basically meat, that there's little difference between us and, you know, a rack of bacon that you pick up at Kroger, that we are just meat. And in the end, we can be eaten as well, as easily as you might consume uh, a burger or a steak or a bucket of chicken. Uh, so I think that's part of it. I think there's also um, the fear of being consumed. We, we remember on some level, at some atavistic level, if you will, what it is to be prey. Um, I, uh -huh. I teach a class in horror and I always ask my students, uh, when you jump in a swimming pool, how many of you surface and look around to make sure there isn't a shark in the pool with you? And they all kind of laugh and nod. And they're like, yeah, I do that. I'm like, you know, on a conscious level, you know, there's no way there's a shark. And no matter how, you know, no matter how much of a practical joker your friend is, they're not going to slip a 10 foot great white in while you jump in the water. <laughs> and yet we instinctively look to make sure that there isn't a shark in the water. The likelihood of you being eaten by a shark is tiny. And yet that fear is there. Uh, and again, the students all laugh, but then they begin to realize, yeah, we have this fear of, of being eaten, of being prey, of, you know, you, the, you don't want to be eaten. That's a really bad way to go. Uh, and then last but not least, it also circulates around our own fear of uh, disgust. And, and scientists and anthropologists have done studies and discovered that disgust really centers around things that come in and out of the mouth. If I say, you know, I, I was talking to my kids the other day who were asking about um, people eating insects around the world. And they thought, you know, oh, people eat spiders and, and insects. I'm like, yeah, pound for pound, they have more protein in them than most Western meats. So yes, if you like chicken and beef, you should actually be eating locusts. Yeah. Uh, but the, for, I think in Western cultures, we find the idea of insect eating to be particularly anathema. It's disgust because it has to do with the mouth. So we, you know, the, we can get into, for example, Julia Kristeva's theories of, of the abject and things that are me and not me. Blood inside my body is fine. My blood outside my body is gross and disgusting. Uh, and that's, you know, I think very few people in the world aren't on some level repulsed by vomit. You know, like that, was, that was literally just food that was outside the body and you had no problem with it. It went in the body and came out again, and now it's one of the most disgusting things ever. So we really, we don't like the mouth as a portal in and out of the body. Anything going in, we need to be very careful of. Uh, you know, it's, it's that old joke of what's worse than seeing a worm in your apple, seeing half a worm. Yeah. Because the idea is you've, well, the other half is already in you now. Yeah. And yeah. so we're, we're, we're disgusted by the possibility of eating things that gross us out, including, of course, other humans. I guess what's, what's interesting to me about, you know, going back to this, the, the question of entomophagy, which I think is a fascinating and actually really important piece to solving some of the challenges that we have with global hunger and food security of yeah. eating insects. But here's the thing, in, in, in some cultures, the consumption of insects is 100% acceptable. It's normal. They don't have this disgust reaction because it is something that is a learned behavior. And so I'm wondering, how, can, can you have examples within cultures where consumption of, through cannibalism, is a learned and accepted behavior. And I think oh, the answer Lord, is yes, yes, but under certain contexts, right? What are Yes, yes, contexts? good Lord, yes. It's, it's all cultural and it's all learned behavior. And one of the things I talk about in the book is, is uh, cultural encounters, which is something that fascinates me as a theater person. And now as a horror person, I'm kind of interested where anthropologists sort of show up to cultures that practice something called mortuary cannibalism, which is the mm -hmm. idea we owe it to the people we love to consume them, to take them inside ourselves. 
And so when uh, Western anthropologists would meet cultures that practiced um, uh, mortuary cannibalism, they'd be like, well, what do you do with your dead? Well, we, we bury them in the ground and like, that's what we do with like our waste. Why would you ever put someone you love in the ground? Uh, and then you also have something like um, in Zoroastrianism and in Tibet, the, the practice of sky burial. With Zoroastrianism, fire and the earth are both too pure to put in something that's impure like a human body. So the body is uh, placed out in the open and birds, uh, sacred birds, vultures usually come and consume all the flesh. And then the bones themselves are ground up and placed within rocks so that they cannot harm earth or fire. And again, these are all cultural concepts. The idea of you know, I, I cannot imagine grandma just passed away, so let's bring her to the vultures in our culture. Uh, <laughs> that would not be acceptable, yeah. <laughs> no, whereas to the Zoroastrians, it not only makes perfect sense, it's sort of demanded by, by the universe. And so there are cultures that practice mortuary cannibalism. Uh, there's a story I tell in the book about a uh, Jesuit priest who showed up in New France, uh, now Quebec, and is going around with uh, communion saying, you got to eat God, you got to drink God's flesh, you got to drink, drink God's blood, eat his flesh in the form of uh, communion and, and wine. And uh, in the First Nations, people are like, you're crazy. Why would you ever do that? That seems so strange. And he's like, but you guys are cannibals. I mean, you, you eat the hearts of the people you kill in battle. And I'm like, yes, to show honor to an enemy that you've defeated and to gain his strength, you must consume the heart because that's, mm -hmm. that's where you find the strength of the warrior. So to them, that makes perfect sense. There are good biological and spiritual reasons to consume human flesh in, in these instances, uh, to honor your ancestors, uh, in the case of mortuary cannibalism, to, um, uh, to, to gain something from an enemy that you've defeated and who fought well and admirably. Uh, in those cultures, cannibalism, so, so, such as it is, makes perfect sense. And our practices are quite anathema. Why would you ever stick a dead body in the ground? Why would you spend all? And even in, within our own culture, we have people who are sort of looking at cremation, which was supposed to be a more uh, environmentally friendly uh, response to burial and going, yeah, but look at the sheer amount of energy and the amount of material that gets put up in the sky. And so there's now sort of the, this new form of cremation that doesn't use fire at all, but instead uses chemicals to reduce the body down to its essential elements. And I guarantee within a few years, we're going to find out that that is also equally horrible. And we need to find something else to dispose of the body. So uh, if everyone has something that makes sense to them uh, that other cultures usually, because of their worldview, find problematic or disgusting. Yeah, this, this makes me think of, um, there was a memoir I read recently. I'm trying to think of the, the, the author's name, but it's, it was like something like smoke gets in my eyes or smoke gets in your eyes. And it was about her journey in, in handling the dead and funerary practice. And what was amazing mm -hmm. to me is that we put, you know, so many chemicals into bodies to preserve the bodies. And then we also, in some cases, then after being showcased, we then cremate them on top of that, you know, so there's this- Sending all those chemicals all right these, up in the air. Yeah, there's just all these strange, you know, funerary steps that, that we just come to accept as normal within our culture, but are very different from others. So, yeah. I wanted that to also speaks, if I may, to the, the Jessica Mitford has a fascinating book called The American Way of Death, uh, in mm -hmm. which she argues sometime in the early 20th century, the, the, uh, the American relationship to death changed. Usually people were acquainted with death from an early age because families lived in extended groups. Children saw their grandparents die, saw a cousin who got kicked by a horse and who passed away. Bodies were prepared, you know, clean and prepared in the home. Uh, everything was sort of a close affair. And sometime around the Second World War, we, you know, well, actually at the beginning of the last century, we moved cemeteries out of town. Mm 
So, you know, in the small town in New England that I grew up in, in the center of town, there are four churches and each one has its own cemetery. But the new cemetery is way out at the edge of town where nobody lives. So sort of out of sight, out of mind. And we, we've changed the language of death. We don't talk about people who have died. We say, you know, they, they passed on or we lost them. Uh, we talk about the body as not them. You know, uh, people come up to you at, at, you know, grandpa's funeral and say he's in a better place. And the snarky person in me wants to be like, no, he's in that box over there. <laughs> but at the same time, it's that, that idea that this, the sarks, the flesh, is just this thing I carry around, but it's somehow not me. And it's because we want to detach ourselves both from the body and from death, which is the inevitable mm -hmm. consequence for the body. So our, our, our very language of death, we no longer go to, fun you know, we have funeral homes and, and funeral directors, which make it sound like a big production number. And the whole idea of the, the making the body look like they're just someone sleeping. You know, so we're, we're fighting the very processes of death that the human body, as soon as it uh, ceases living, begins to decay, begins to return uh, to its material, you know, to, to its element materials. And we want to hide and disguise that in our culture as much as humanly possible. Uh, partly because we don't want to face the loss of others, but partly because it comes down to the question you asked me before. Yeah. We're not really cool with our own mortality. Yeah. It's a, yeah, it's, it, that's probably one of the key elements of the human condition is this knowing that it's coming and how to deal mm -hmm. with it. It's, uh, or not deal with it. I'm going to go to the gym because yeah. I'm going to live forever. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, in the book, you refer to these classifications of cannibalism so you have of course this psychologically ill like Hannibal Lecter type right sure. which is a form of psychosis very different from you know from from these cultural funerary rites or mortuary right. rites but you also include in this list um which which I guess was originally articulated by Louis um Petrinovich Mm -hmm. There are other types, including medicinal cannibalism, consuming yes. parts of corpses for medical reasons, sacrificial to to enact revenge or gain strength of the enemy. And I guess that's where, where the that's eating the heart. Yes. Yeah. The political cannibalism to terrify one's neighbors or enemies, um, and then to satisfy hunger, which is like the one you can think of when, when there's a plane crash and you right. have to eat something to survive after a long period. Um, so maybe let's start with the medicinal cannibalism. Like, what yeah. is that about? Because I've heard of eating animal parts as a kind of mm -hmm. form of medicine, but I've not heard of eating human body parts as a form of medicine. Yeah, medicinal cannibalism, it's, it's sort of gone out of, of fashion, but back particularly during the Renaissance, uh, when um, travel in some odd way became easier, Europe became fascinated by something called mellified man which is uh, a body preserved in honey, and in particular, a mummy. They would get mummies from Egypt, uh, mm -hmm. soak the mummy in honey, and then you would eat parts of it. And the idea is that this would help cure all sorts of things, uh, that, that it was a good cure for gout, that it could take care of your arthritis. Uh, and similarly in China, there's a whole uh, school of medicine that that's uses everything from uh, uh, na you know, finger and toenails and bits of hair, to uh, human organs um, that aren't necessarily consumed in and of themselves, but are used as part of the process of creating some medicine that one can then take. You strain it through the liver of a person who went through this. And we see this in some way reflected in, and here's where I go back to theater again, when you look at, for example, the uh, items in Shakespeare's Witch's Cauldron, where, you know, finger of a birth strangled babe, 
uh, uh, finny uh, maw and gullet of the ravenous salt sea shark. All of these things are, are that the witches are throwing in the cauldron are also things that can be used in, in sort of folk medicine. Mm-hmm. So, and last but not least, we do have one modern example of that, and that is the practice of eating the placenta. That uh, when yeah. someone gives birth, the placenta is kept and then baked in or uh, cooked into a soup or a stew for the mother to eat to recover, or that uh, some people are like, well, we're, we're all going to share it as part of this. The idea of eating the placenta, that is a form of cannibalism. So it's like, the, with, if you are a mother and you give birth and you keep the placenta and then you eat that yourself, does that make you a cannibal? That makes you an auto cannibal, yes. An auto because again, cannibal, cannibal is, you know, the, the eating of one's, uh, cannibal is like eating like, a human being eating a human being. That placenta, you came out of your own body uh, and it was, you know, what connected you and the child and all that, which is all very wonderful and beautiful. Mm-hmm. And some people have started, you know, that people recommend eating it. But if I take out the word placenta and put in the word hand, that becomes it's still a part problem. of you. Yeah. <laughs> And you're consuming it, so it's going back into you. You're not necessarily going to regrow a new hand, but it's 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 still a form of consuming a body part, something that the body grew and created, even if it's just yeah. a temporary part of the body. So uh, that's an example of medicinal cannibalism. Again, scientifically speaking, I'm casting no aspersions here on people yeah. who eat their their placenta. It, the word cannibal has has become so problematic for a number of reasons. Going back to one of the other forms that you talked about, political cannibalism. Um, which is manifested in a variety of ways throughout history. But medicinal cannibalism takes everything from uh, Europeans in the 16th century eating bits of mummy uh, to various forms of Chinese medicine that employ human body parts to the eating of the placenta after birth. That's interesting. You know, I Part of my, my work that I do um, in the study of folklore, folk medicines, is documentation of the use of medicinal plants, but also any other kind of environmental resources. And I have documented in a number of cultures the uses of what we call animal byproducts or human byproducts. So, you know, human breast milk is interestingly mm-hmm. used in a lot of forms of traditional medicine, as is sure. urine. But those, you know, aren't considered, I think, under that same aspersion of, of cannibalistic behavior, but it is using a product of the human body mm-hmm. as a form of medicine. Um, and uh, a lot of ritual built into that as well. Like, for example, if you have, um, there's one tradition, if you have like an eye infection, conjunctivitis, you have to be treated with the breast milk of a mother nursing her first male-born child. <laughs> like, you know, so all these like little rules and caveats uh, with these practices. Um, but this, this idea of taking, taking materials from animals and even from humans, I guess it, it's, it's spread throughout cultures um, when it comes to those systems. Very much so. And the modern industrialized West really tried to move away from that, at least in terms of the human element of it. We still use, obviously, Mm -hmm. animal products to the point where, you know, we create industrial farms to create animals for their uses. But the, I think if you went up to someone now and said, here's mummy, it will help your arthritis, you're not (laughs) going to find any takers to consume that. Yeah, yeah, I would doubt that (laughs) as well. Well, let's let's get into this political cannibalism. So, what does mm-hmm. that mean? Is it is it about eating your enemies to strike fear in others? Is it is I mean, is this kind of like the when I think of political cannibalism, right away my mind goes to to the Hebrew to the to the headhunters of of the Amazon. But again, I've also heard stories from locals that that wasn't always a form of warfare scare tactics. That in a way, it was no. also a way of preserving 
the the image of loved ones and you know like as a memory um, right. to hold on to so i wonder how much is true political cannibalism that's interpreted that way versus how much is about sentimental value indeed and that's sort of the challenge when you're doing anthropology about these sorts of things is it also depends who you ask so when you ask the people who have been eaten, they're going to point to the eaters and go, oh, they are monsters and they're political cannibals. And you ask the other people, I'm like, well, we're paying them honor. This, in our culture, this is a very good thing. Uh, so there, there is that element of it. Um, political cannibalism in particular, uh, the, perhaps the best manifestation I can think of is with Idi Amin and Mobutu Sese Seko in uh, Africa. Um, who would, just like uh, we see in Titus Andronicus and Seneca's play, Thyestes, um, serve, serve their sort of political rivals a dish, watch them eat it, and then say, you just ate someone, where it's sort of that unknowing cannibalism. Uh, so that's one form of political cannibalism is showing, I can make you eat human flesh. I can reduce you to this most base state, because oftentimes, and I think the modern mindset across the world is that cannibalism is somehow, in quotes, primitive, that it's done by, you know, animalistic people, that it's done by savages. All, think of all the negative connotations that come to mind with cannibalism. So if I can make you eat a piece of a dead body, uh, I have power over you. That's one form of political cannibalism. The second, of course, is much more straightforward. It's, it's the ultimate owning of your enemies. I'm so powerful, I can eat you. I can have you killed and I can eat a piece of your flesh and no one can do anything about it. You can't stop me from eating you. To consume your enemies is the ultimate vindication. So uh, that there's, there's not a huge amount of widespread political cannibalism. Much more often is, is the sacrificial, which comes closer to what you were talking about in terms of when two groups uh, go to war and, and one eats part of the other. That's a kind of sacrificial. We're taking the enemies, we're sacrificing them, and we're, we're sharing in their, in their bodies. Um, the other thing that, that happens, of course, is then um, uh, the, the one that I, I imagine we're about to talk about, which is survival cannibalism. Yeah, which is you eat because alive. you have to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's, to be brutally honest, that is historically hands down the most common form of cannibalism. Hmm. We eat people because they're they're the most convenient food source. Um, perhaps an example, the uh, whale ship Essex sank about 2,000 miles off the coast of South America. Uh, and a number of people climbed on board a lifeboat with very little water and no food. And so they follow what is called the law of the sea. You draw straws, the, the general idea. And again, as you mentioned earlier, there are rituals and there are rules for all of this. And so the rule is if we're all in lifeboat, rank no longer matters, nothing else matters. We draw straws, shortest straw is killed, Second straw does the second shortest straw does the killing, and then everybody eats equally. And we do this so that one person dies so that the rest of us can live. And so long as the system was fair, we didn't just go, well, I'm the captain, so you can't eat me. Uh, but Dr. Cassandra is a private, so as the lowest ranking person here, bon appetit. Uh, <laughs> so long as it's fair and everyone has a chance to be the eaten and everyone has a chance to be the killer, then you will not face any charges in any nation. Uh, you, you mentioned earlier the plane crash, of course, the Uruguayan rugby team uh, made famous in both the book and the movie Alive. The more recent Showtime series Yellow Jackets about a soccer team uh, that's yes. sort of inspired by the rugby team. Um, the events recently in, in Ukraine have been reminding me of the Holomador, the you know, so, sort of Stalin's state-enforced famine in the Ukraine, which resulted in uh, yeah. hundreds of thousands of people starving to death. and. If you read the historic accounts of this in, in you know, 1930s Soviet Union, 
people were, the babies would die and their families would eat them because that was the only, literally the only source of food they could find. That um, parent, you know, that parents would say, okay, we're, dad's going to kill mom and we're all going to eat mom and maybe that'll keep the rest of the family alive for another week and maybe we'll get food then. So, uh, and you see that happen around the world. One of the things that the book talks about is when you start looking at mythological monsters that consume corpses, they're almost universally found in geographies of food scarcity. That the Wendigo, the northern, you know, the, the, the First Nations monster that consumes human flesh comes, you know, from the Cree and the Ojibwe and people who live uh, in Canada, what is now Canada, where the winters are very harsh, where game can sometimes dry up and not be plentiful. And so they talk about people, oh, yes, the Wendigo came, turned his heart to ice, and he ate his family. Uh, likewise, the ghouls of Arabia and, and Persia. You have these creatures that live in the cemeteries and consume the dead who are found in desert cultures where, again, you have some agriculture and, and some shepherding, but also a great deal of food scarcity. You have Australian, Aboriginal Australian cannibal monsters that are found uh, in the, the great deserts of Australia. Uh, why? Because, well, there's not a lot of food there. So mm -hmm. eventually you will be driven to eat other people in order to stay alive if, if you can't find other food. So that, when, to sort of tie it all together, you have this idea of we are afraid of eating other people, we are afraid of being eaten, but we also recognize situations where that becomes necessary to survive. And so to, in order to express those fears and those anxieties, we as a species imagine monsters that do it. We imagine the Wendigo and the ghoul and the Aswang and the Jinkiniki and the creatures that eat uh, human flesh because we may become that at some point. Where does this place zombies? I mean, I'm thinking of like popular culture today <laughs> and this massive amount of yeah. attention and interest in zombie movies and zombie tales. Um, because with a zombie, you're not only being eaten, but you then transform yourself right. into a flesh eater. So where does that kind of- Well, we have, we have one person to blame for that. And that person is George Romero. The man who created Night of the Living Dead. And the funny, it's funny you ask because I've also written a book about zombie movies called Back from the Dead. Uh -huh. uh, and one of the things to note about zombies is they're the, the first new world monster in, in, in sort of Western culture. Vampires, werewolves, ghosts all come from Europe, but the zombie comes from Haiti. And mm. the word itself um, comes from a, a West African word referring to the, the dead or the spirit. And the idea of the zombie is that you've been enslaved uh, your whole life, and when you die, you're still going to be a slave, that you can be brought back and forced to labor continually. And so the, the horror of the zombie is, is uh, not that it's a dead person you know, who's out to get you, it's that even after death, you can still be slave labor. You can, the death does not end your suffering. Uh, and to the people in Haiti, you know, living under brutal conditions with plantations, this, this is a horrific monster because it's what you could become. And uh, in 1929, um, an American anthropologist named William Seabrook publishes a book called The Magic Island, which introduces the zombie to the United States. And like everything else, Hollywood hears a good idea and immediately turns it into a bad idea. Uh, and so you get films like White Zombie, the, the title of which, frankly, is racist and offensive because the whole idea is, see this thing that's happening to the black people in Haiti? Now imagine this happened to a blonde white woman. Wouldn't that be bad? So the idea of the white zombie is lifetime perpetual enslavement after death is really bad when it happens to a white person. What George Romero does in Night of the Living Dead, he never mentions the word zombie, but instead because the idea of the zombie is a reanimated corpse. Uh, and in Haitian Voudon, 
it's a reanimated corpse that comes back to life to labor, to work the plantations. Romero says, okay, these are reanimated corpses, but they are driven for some reason to attack the living and feast on their flesh. And in fact, zombie, Romero doesn't call them zombies. He calls them ghouls. If you watch the film, they talk about they're okay. ghouls because they feast on human flesh. The other thing that they call them are things. You saw those things out there. They're not acknowledged as people and they're not called zombies. Um, then Romero comes, you know, so zombies had been in pop culture, everything from White Zombie. And then in the 1960s, there were a lot more zombie films, things like um, The Incredibly Strange Creatures Who Stopped Living and Became Mixed Up Zombies, Zombies of the Stratosphere. Zombies were sort of this B-movie monster that suggested a mindless reanimated corpse. And Romero added this element of anthropophagus. Maybe they're cannibals, but the question is, are zombies still human because they're reanimated corpses? Are they a different thing or are they us? So that's sort of where it becomes a gray area. Zombies may be cannibalistic. They may not if they're not human anymore. And Romero's la the language of Romero's characters, look at those things out there, certainly seems to indicate that people in the movies don't consider them human anymore. So then we have this explosion of zombies somewhat uh, following Night of the Living Dead. And then it's actually after 9-11 that zombies get a huge renaissance. And partly because I suspect uh, it really plays into the fear of the zeitgeist, that we're afraid of people coming and taking over, converting us to their way of life, that mm. uh, urban areas are no longer safe, that these people who used to look like us, who seem to be human, are in fact enemies who are out to destroy us and ruin things. And the only safe place to hide is the mall. I mean, talk about a metaphor that's just so obvious it smacks you in the face repeatedly. Uh, so the zombie becomes this beautiful sort of metaphor monster, but at heart, it's it's Romero who gives us the idea that they eat human flesh, and then you end up with things like The Walking Dead and uh, all of the zombie remakes and all the zombie movies, Zombieland, uh, World War Z. There's this explosion of zombie culture because the zombie is the perfect thing to project any and all of your anxieties on because it's also a pr pretty blank monster. Vampires yeah, stand for a particular thing. Werewolves are transformation. Exactly. Mm -hmm. But for, you know, the, a conservative can look at zombies and see a woke mob. A liberal can look at uh, zombies <laughs> and see the danger of conformity and the status quo of things that are mindless consumers that just want to eat, 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 even though it actually doesn't benefit them at all. I mean, you can, you can do so many sociocultural analyses of zombies that they're, it's a very, very flexible monster. At the heart, the question you asked, are they cannibals? Are they, they're at the very least anthropophagus. They eat people, but that was invented by George Romero. He created that. So here's sort of one person makes a worldwide mythology. That's amazing. Ain't technology awesome? That's amazing. I mean, you think, <laughs> yeah. And then putting that into context and going back in time to one of our oldest stories, I'm, I'm thinking of some of the things that you wrote about Beowulf. Oh, yes. And Grendel. I wonder if we could talk a bit about Grendel because, you know, Beowulf is one of those, you know, poems that, that almost every high schooler, I think, has to read at some point. And so it's something that many in the audience will be familiar with. And this, you know, this villain of Grendel, like, what, what, what can we learn about that, that portion of the story when it applies to this? Well, what, at least when I read Beowulf in high school, what they didn't really talk about is it's this sort of pagan Anglo-Saxon tale that then got an overlay of Christianity on it. Mm -hmm. So when, when the Christians come along, suddenly Grendel is a descendant of Cain. And he's sort of a, you know, first among the fallen and a great sinner. And the, the big character defining thing for Grendel, at least at the beginning, uh, Hrothgar has built 
uh, this huge mead hall for all of his, his warriors to celebrate and hang out and throw great parties. And Grendel is the one who dwells in the darkness hating. Grendel is just angry and hateful and he's not included. Um, and so he, because he's just the embodiment of hate and anger and destruction, he goes into the mead hall and the first thing he does is begin tearing arms off of people and begin eating the bodies of the people he kills. And so it's, you know, the first night he shows up and he walks in and he trashes the place and he drags off several warriors and later on they find like bits of the corpses that he has obviously consumed. And eventually, you know, this, this happens several times before Hrothgar finally says, we got to do something about this. And they summon uh, Beowulf, of course, the king of the Geats. And Beowulf, you know, basically, uh, to sort of paraphrase the poem, looks like Crimps Hemsworth, you know, has a swimmer's body, just absolutely sexy and fabulous and smart and Christian. And so he shows up and he's like, okay, we're going to have a party tonight. And when Beowulf shows up, I'll take care of it. And, or when Grendel shows up, I'll take care of it. And then they have this massive fight and he tears off his arm uh, and Grendel goes back to his mother in the swamp. And then the mother's like, well, now you killed my boy. Now it's my turn to mess mm -hmm. with uh, Hrothgar and friends. And of course, Beowulf then must go to their lair and fight. Uh, so it's this whole sort of Christian notion of the monster as hateful sinner and, and he's a chaos monster. He does not like civilization. He does not like light. He does not like music. He does not like all the good things that come with being a civilized society. And so because he is a savage and because he is not civilized, therefore he must be a consumer of human flesh. Wow. But you have John Gardner in 1970 then writing Grendel, a novel of the story of Beowulf told from Grendel's point of view, going, that's not what happened at all. <laughs> so I, I have a soft spot for Grendel. I think, you know, he's, he's every kid who wasn't invited to a party and just, you know, sort of sits there going, man, someday I'm going to be famous and they're going to hate not knowing me. I'm going to blow up the house and I'm going to go home and play video games. Uh, except Grendel had the courage to then walk in the house and eat people. Not that I'm encouraging anyone to do that. Yeah, that yeah, was a joke. Yeah, yeah. Please, no one. <laughs> not, yeah, joke. No advice here on the show for that. Absolutely <laughs> like, not. What I, what I love, too, is, you know, in some of Tolkien's work, and, and you also wrote about this in, in the book, is, is how echoes of, of Grendel appear in many of, of the, char you know, the characters and the I guess the, the the groups of creatures that are covered mm -hmm. in Tolkien's world. Grendel has a whole lot of children and grandchildren and literary heirs who show up all over the place. These sort of angry, monstrous humanoids who live to eat human flesh. Uh, and it's sort of that, that moment in the Fellowship of the Ring when, I think it's Fellowship, it might be Two Towers, Peter Jackson's film version, where... Uh, the orcs want to eat the two hobbits that they've kidnapped. And one of the orcs says, no, we can't eat them. You know, Sauron, Sauron wants them. Uh, and one of the other orcs is like, no, I'm going to eat them. And then he just, the orc that says he's going to eat them is then immediately killed by the leader who says meats back on the menu boys. And all the orcs eat the orc there. And I'm like, that's just a whole family of Grendel's. Yeah. Yeah. That's, just an, that's, 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 that's Grendel's family reunion right there. They're all getting together. <laughs> But the, the Beowulf story, as I talk about in the book, comes back again and again and again. It's sort of one of those ur-texts in English of the idea of the hero who is a nice guy and who plays by the rules, but who is also a warrior who, when it's time, throws down and is not afraid to harm the bad guys, going up against an enemy that has no pity, no mercy, and is just the embodiment of hate and, and chaos. And uh, the stories that we tell ourselves as civilizations over and over are about how we fight the chaos monsters, whether it's Tiamat or uh, even within our own American political system, the other side represents violence and chaos who will destroy our way of life and everything we stand for. 
and we are the forces of order and good. And this is a narrative as as a as a people we love. We're the good guys. We're the Beowulf. They're the Grendel. Yeah. But everybody, one of the points that I make in the book is everybody is somebody's cannibal. Everybody is someone's Grendel. That the narratives themselves, we cast the the the, the label cannibal on the people who we are facing across the way. So uh, one of the justifications for uh, colonization and enslavement in Africa is they're cannibals and we need to stop that. But the funny thing is the the people, the, the, the nations of Africa are looking at the West. For example, when King Leopold of Belgium is absolutely raping and destroying the Congo uh, and justifying it in the name of Christianity and civilization, he told his soldiers, you have, you know, in order to get paid, you have to prove that you've killed people by cutting off their hands. So the indigenous people in Africa are seeing these Europeans cutting off these hands and carrying baskets of hands back into their enclosures and going, well, what, are, what, what could they possibly be doing with those other than eating them? And so there's this notion of the Europeans are, have come here to eat us. Yes, that wow. everybody, everyone assumes that someone else is the cannibal. The uh, Jesuit yeah. priest I mentioned earlier was looking at the Iroquois going, you guys are cannibals. And the Iroquois going, you literally just told us you just made, you know, you turn bread into the body of your God and are forcing us to eat it. You're the cannibal. <laughs> so yeah. who consumes what and what is acceptable consumption and what is not is entirely culturally determined. And everyone looks askance at everyone else's and is more than willing to believe the worst of them. In the case of Africans looking at Europeans, they are totally justified because they were doing the worst. But I'm, I'm always cautious because at the same exact time, the Europeans were using cannibalism as a justification to do their atrocities as well. Yeah. So we, we use cannibalism as a tool to justify treating Grendel and everyone else we don't want to treat well poorly because they're, you know, they're savage eaters of flesh and we are civilized. We only eat animal flesh. <laughs> and I've got all kinds of other episodes around that as well on <laughs> the ethics and morality of, of these concentrated feedlots and how we treat our livestock. It's sure. Yeah, this is this has just been enlightening. I mean, I think there's I think this is a really good point that to think about, you know, how cannibalism and labels of this can be used as a power ploy as a way of, of justifying actions against others but it's important to note too that every grendel has their own side of the story um, very much so as well yeah but also that that fear that's endemic to all of us we can't look away i mean there's a reason why everyone's heard of jeffrey dahmer's name mm -hmm. and and not some other people who have probably killed as many people but dahmer ate people and that's sort of what freaks us out and yeah. it's we attach that psychopathic cannibalism to everything else mortuary cannibalism survival cannibalism and so the people who come back from the Essex, the people who survived the Uruguayan plane crash, the people who, uh, during the Holomadora, ate some of their own family, are never looked at the same again. They are considered, and we talk about that in the book, that, that the very act of eating human flesh somehow renders you monstrous in the eyes of us. Even if we understand it, even if we go, hey, I would have done the same thing, man, but I didn't, and you did, and you were there, and that somehow now makes you little other, little different little distant something yeah. a little further away from me because i don't have that experience and i don't there was a huge outcry when uh risa aslan on saturday uh, on on cnn went among the agoria of india and they were eating pieces of flesh that were coming from the crematorium and he ate one and they're like why would you do that on live tv and why what are you doing like why are you eating something you found in a crematorium you know and it's also sensationalizing their religious practice they're doing it for a very specific reason related to yeah. their religious faith you're doing it for ratings 
And yeah, that that's makes a it big, suddenly... big difference. Yeah. So I, I fully concede to being a hypocrite here. I'm fascinated by cannibalism and corpse consumption, but there is something salacious about it. I mean, the, the people are buying the book because they're going, they see the cover, they read the title, and they're like, oh, yeah, that's okay, that's weird, that's out there, and yeah, it is. But I hope one of the things that the book is doing is encouraging people to sort of think more deeply about how culture works and how we construct monsters and how we think about these monsters. Yes, it's fun to think about Wendigos and ghouls, and certainly I love all the no novels and movies that play with them. But I, as an academic, I also, uh, you know, someone who works with students almost every day of my life, I want people critically thinking about how and, how and why we tell the stories that we do and how it relates to actual everyday reality that we're all going to go yeah. end up in that sarcophagus, the box that eats us. <laughs> that's a great point. And that's a great, that's a great line to end with, with the sarcophagus. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, tell us where, Kevin, where can we find your book? And um, what's, what's next on your plate? I know you mentioned that you've got um, a Shakespeare festival coming up. And I think I you also mentioned StokerCon. StokerCon. Uh, StokerCon's coming up in May. Uh, the Eaters of the Dead is up for a Bram Stoker Award, so I'm very excited for that. Congratulations. Uh, yeah. StokerCon, for those who don't know, is a gathering of uh, the Horror Writers Association every year uh, to uh, celebrate work and, and share and learn. Uh, so I'm an active member of the Horror Writers community and very excited to be there. I run a Shakespeare festival on Los Angeles's west side. We're doing Julius Caesar in June and The Tempest in July. So if you live in L.A. and want a night of free Shakespeare, it's on the LMU campus. You can go to the Loyola Marymount University website, and uh, there'll be information there about how to come see the show. Uh, it's our first time back in two years after COVID. And then I have just a number of book projects. I mean, uh, as you know, as an author, uh, the book that I'm talking about now is two books ago. I've already uh, have a new <laughs> book out on theater in the macabre. I'm working on a book on a history of horror in the theater. Uh, going back to the ancient Greeks and Egyptians and all the way through things like Sweeney Todd and the horror to be found in Hamilton, as well as contemporary ghost shows and interactive immersive experiences. Uh, and the next project that I'm in the middle of researching is about witches. Uh, that's the follow-up to Eaters of the Dead, is how we conceive and represent witches in our cultures uh, and how literally every culture has the concept and the idea of a witch, but how they figure within that culture is very different, although almost universally they're women, and they're not quite to be trusted. And I'm, I'm wondering, what does that say about us as a species? So yeah, well, I I like I, I'll have to give that one a read because I'm I'm fascinated with witches because they have a lot of knowledge in many cultures. Women labeled as witches are often also women that know a lot about plants. Yes, um, very much so. <laughs> yeah, and so it's like they're not are they to be trusted or not? They you know they may know about hallucinogens, they may know about poisons, medicines. Um, so the the placement of witches in history and, and their ties to medicine have always fascinated me. Mm -hmm. Any time I read about a witchy plant or something considered to be a powerful witch's plant. Usually there's some pretty cool chemistry to, to dig into in that plant. And so mm -hmm. I, I'm all about witchy plants. <laughs> Wonderful. Yes, right. the, the midwife uh, and village healer knows all about this stuff. And she lives at the end of the village and grows all these herbs. And everyone's happy to go to her for cures and help to give birth until suddenly the cattle are dying or my son passed away and there's no explanation for it. Oh, yeah. wait, there is an explanation. Witch! Yeah, exactly. So, it, yeah, uh, and uh, just the cultural dynamics of that fascinate me, that the person who is actually the, arguably the most knowledgeable in the community and the one who is the most helpful is the first one to be turned on when things turn bad. And I think you can certainly yeah. see analogies within our own community 
Uh, it would not surprise me not to get political, but it would not surprise me if people started calling Dr. Fauci a witch, for example. He's a witch and yeah. he's out to distress. It's that notion of the person who knows stuff and knows about medicine is actually the one who's causing all the harm. Oh, I think that that kind of mythology has already started to spread <laughs> around, you know, it's, yeah, you're absolutely right, though. It's like the things that people don't understand, they go for um, these other explanations. The person who does understand them must obviously yeah, be yeah. a witch. <laughs> yeah, crazy. Well, this has been absolutely fascinating, Kevin. Thank you for oh, it's been a pleasure. on the show. And, Thank you. Um, for everybody that's interested, I mean, just to get some it was it was a treat to read because it brought me back again to some of those things that i recalled from you know whether it was reading beowulf in high school or thinking back to college shakespeare that i read or some of these anthropological ethnographies of mortuary practices there's a lot of great information um in this book and it covers uh, many different cultures so congratulations on that and all of your other projects that you've got um as oh, a prolific pleasure. writer <laughs> coming out great thank you and thanks for having me on this was fun yeah, absolutely. You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious, recorded for you today online. I want to say a big shout out of thanks to our producers at Co-Conspiracy Entertainment, to Rob Cohen and Christine Roth for their continued support and putting out an awesome show every week. Thank you to you, our listeners, for tuning in each week. And again, um, you can check out this and all of our other episodes at our website at foodofarmacology.com, or you can check out the video version of this episode also on our YouTube channel at Teach Ethnobotany. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy out there, and I'll see you next time.